You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, hi, everybody. Are you surprised that I'm here not teaching about worship for once? It's kind of fun. I mean, even when I teach about worship, hopefully I'm teaching Bible, but uh, really glad to be here today. This has been a topic of interest of mine that I wanted to explore out loud with you. That's in a way kind of duh, but also not, at least for me, it was a revelation to think this way. So let's pray and we'll get started. Dear Lord, we give you thanks for this good day and we thank you that you didn't leave us alone, you didn't leave us comfortless, but you came uh, and gave us your scriptures and then gave us your very self, Jesus, the word made flesh. And so as your word opens to us, we are dependent upon your Holy Spirit to come and to teach us and to guide us into all truth. Jesus, uh, show us our need for you, and then through your Holy Spirit, give yourself to us afresh today as we open your word. Help it to not be just a heady exercise, but something that um, drills down all the way to our hearts and then walks with us Monday through Saturday until we come again and are renewed in your word. Amen. Amen. So this topic uh, is of interest to me mostly because though it is duh, I didn't recognize it. I didn't recognize that Paul was an Old Testament scholar. he That's what we could say about him. Before knowing Christ, this guy was steeped in the Old Testament. And he was reading it voraciously. He was studying it. It was internalized in him. It's a part of what being a Pharisee was all about, was studying the scriptures. So remember, in Paul's day, they didn't have the New Testament. The New Testament was being written by people like Paul. And so Paul's this Old Testament scholar. And then all of a sudden, he meets Jesus. Um, He begins as a persecutor of the Lord, meets Jesus, and does an about-face, you know, like the archetypal conversion story of someone. And so looking, I want to look through a bunch of passages of Scripture. So hopefully you have your Bibles or or analog and digital form because we're going to be jumping around. And what I want to do is ask the question of how Paul, in his epistles, reads the Old Testament. And that's something that we sort of jump over when we're looking at the epistles, is that when Paul is writing these letters, he's doing, big word, exegesis, meaning uncovering and opening up of the Old Testament. He's helping us understand what it is. And so if we're looking for a good commentary on the Old Testament, you should look at the New Testament (laughs) because it really helps us to understand how we should interpret it. And as we look, we'll see some really cool things that will hopefully drill down into our day-to-day life. I don't know how far we're going to get today, but we've got three weeks to go over this. And one of the things I want to say is when you read Paul reading the Old Testament, he seems keenly interested, as any good Jewish scholar is, in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah or the Pentateuch as it's called, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And as I've worked with professors who've taught me this stuff, and as I've gone back myself, I see it more clearly that in his letters, what he's doing is working in these texts to describe, come on in, to describe um, what this theology, what this, this learning is around Jesus in the Old Testament. And one of the things I want to say is that if you're a Christian, We need to follow Jesus and follow Paul in the way that they read the Old Testament. And they read the Old Testament seeing Jesus in there. In fact, if you just write down Luke 24, 
It's this really powerful encounter between Luke or between Jesus and two other people after Jesus' resurrection. It's wonderful that this got recorded. It's called uh, these two guys, or maybe a, a man and a woman on the road to Emmaus. We don't know who they were because it says two people, and it names one of them Cleopas, which nobody wants to name their child. Uh, and then some other unnamed person, poor person, doesn't even get in there. So it could have been a married couple, could have been two disciples. It says two disciples are rocking on the road, and they were dejected a little bit because Jesus had come and uh, done his stuff. He'd gone to the cross and we hear these rumors that he's risen from the dead, but we can't find him. And we think the whole gig is up and we were following him while he was on earth. And I feel like this whole thing might be a sham. And then Jesus appears. He's got a lot. To, he's post-resurrection Jesus getting ready to ascend to heaven. And Jesus spends time with two individuals. But if you read the text carefully on what it says Jesus did with them, when Jesus said, hey, are you so slow to understand all these things concerning me? The next thing he does, it says in Luke 24, is that he opened up the scriptures and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, listen to this, he interpreted for them all those things concerning himself. So when Jesus opens up the Old Testament, he finds Jesus there. And we find that the case with Paul, this Jewish Old Testament scholar, who has this encounter with Jesus. And so when you open to Acts 8 and you read these first accounts of Paul, first called Saul, you know, he has a name change that kind of signifies his new life in Christ. But Saul, does anybody remember where we first find him in the narratives of Acts? Where do we first find Saul? Stoning of Stephen, the guy hold, he was the coat check man, holding the coats for the people stoning Stephen, totally against it. And so that's, that's our introduction, which is a wonder, I mean, it's wonderful literature in the sense of it's introducing this arch nemesis of the church. And then it starts outlining in chapter eight and nine, Paul's persecution, Saul's persecution of the church. It says things like Saul approved of Stephen's execution and Saul was ravaging the church, chapter eight, verse three. And then in chapter nine, this person on the road while he was yet an enemy of God, which when you think about that, that's why he writes the way he does about the stark nature of God coming at you as a sinner. While he was an enemy of God, en route to go do more enemy stuff, Jesus appears to him and shines his grace upon him. And it does a kind of 180 in his life. And hopefully, whether that's a point in time for you or a long journey, that you've encountered the living God, Jesus Christ, coming at you. Saul has this encounter. And then the next part's a little bit opaque to us. But I want to open to Galatians 1, because Paul there gives a little bit of a testimony that gives us some insight into what happens next before his public ministry. You know, sometimes because the narrative moves so quickly in Acts or we read his epistles, we don't realize that there were a few years unaccounted for where Paul kind of goes underground. And Paul talks about those underground years a bit in Galatians 1. And this is the information that we have. Galatians 1, verse 11. Listen to this. And this is going to be introduction and break us into Paul's reading of, of the Old Testament and particularly Genesis. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel was preached uh, by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul received this gospel on the Damascus road. But what we find later is he's also going to be talking about these sort of silent years. And then you hear later in the epistles, like in, in that famous passage that we hear at communion, for I received from the Lord what I pass on to you. 
When Paul uses that language, he's talking about this time where he did Bible studies with Jesus, where he learned to reorient his whole massive understanding of the Old Testament around the person and work of Jesus Christ. So when this language of I received from the Lord happens, you're kind of being triggered and signaled that this is part of what Paul actually got through Jesus revealing himself to him and schooling him in Christ-centered theology in the Old Testament. Verse 13, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many my own age among my people. Extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, what a statement, and who called me by his grace, another great statement, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult anyone. I didn't start going to the Christians who had already been converted, he's saying. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem, to the center of where this stuff's happening, to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, three years after that time, he's doing something, kind of rereading his Old Testament after this encounter with Jesus and maybe even Jesus coming to him and revealing himself to him and sitting down and having Bible studies with him. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, which is another name for Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. So Paul's basically sort of laying out his credentials here, and he's saying, I'm a bit of an unorthodox apostle, because I'm not like the ones who actually knew Jesus while he walked this earth. I received some special revelations of Jesus in Damascus, and then maybe later. But either way, I, as someone who read the Old Testament, got these revelations, and it retooled all my thinking, and now I preach to you this gospel, right? So when we look at Paul and listen to him, what we want to do, I want to use this, and those of you who are like math buffs, this is fun because this was something that a prof gave to me as a way of thinking about the way Paul and Jesus read the Old Testament. We can call this kind of Old Testament math or gospel algebra. But say I give you a sequence of a few numbers, two, comma, four. So being super smart, What's the next number in the sequence? Six. Is there another option? Eight. Why? Right. Because depending on the logic of how two goes to four and then four goes, right, it could either be six or eight. In a w- Oh my gosh. What's 16? Tell me about that one. Oh, brilliant. Even better. Proves my point even more. Okay. When reading the Old Testament, you identify a sequence, but you don't know what the blank is. You might have some educated guesses, but nothing is going to tell you exactly what it is. Is what's coming from the revelation of these covenants and these promises from the Old Testament a 6, an 8, or a 16? Now, when Paul and the other church fathers start reading the scriptures, 
they're basically saying two things about this. Number one, Jesus is that answer. When you're reading the Old Testament, it's Jesus. Jesus is the next number in the sequence. What all that stuff was driving to was Jesus. But here's the mind-blowing part. Not only is Jesus the number, he's also the logic of the sequence. So say Jesus, say the answer, now it's devilish. So uh, I'm not going to go with six. I'm going to go with eight because that's, you know, six is the evil number. Um, What we learn from reading the Old Testament upon revelation of Jesus is not only that he's eight, but that he's the logic of the way the whole thing works. He's 2x. So you're learning a lot. You're not only learning that Jesus is the next sort of culminating line in the prophets, but he's the whole logic of the way all that revelation has worked. And that's what you find being talked about in the New Testament. That's what John is talking about when he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That word that was creating in Genesis, that's Jesus. You know, you hear that in uh, Hebrews when it talks about Jesus being the author and perfecter of our faith or Jesus in, in chapter one, all this glorious language about who Jesus. It's basically saying not only is he the, the culminating revelation, he's the whole logic of the thing, you know, and you have to read both. That's kind of the idea. So if that's helpful for a way in to the way Paul will read Jesus. Now, if we're looking in Paul's epistles for the way that he's reading the book of Genesis, you're going to find him fixating on two characters or two events. The first event really is creation and Adam. And the second event really is Abraham. We don't have time to go over both. Maybe we'll go over Abraham next week or maybe we'll skip on to Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy because I really want to go there because it's really cool when you start thinking about law and gospel as Paul exegetes the Old Testament. But for now, I want to focus on creation and Adam. We're going to make three points today, hopefully. Number one, creation and salvation work the same way. When Paul exegetes creation out of Genesis... He determines that creation and salvation work the same way. Number two, the fall was not only an event. It becomes the way life works for you and me. The fall was not only an event. It becomes the way life works for you and me. And then third, the Christian life, because of the fall, is always going to be marked by tension and contradiction. So if you're a Christian here today, fill in this tension in your life between all the things that, well, you know you should be and struggle to be, but but you actually are, you're understanding Paul's exegesis of Galatians. So you see how grounded this stuff is? Immediately, if you find your life lived in tension as a Christian, you're living out what Paul is describing Genesis tells us through Jesus. Okay, that's kind of what I mean there. So point one, Creation and salvation work the same way. If you have your Bibles, I want to go to one spot that does it cleanly and directly in a short amount of time, even though we could go to some other places. And you may have been tempted to look over this language before, but go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. I love this. It's very compact. Hopefully, too, what Paul's doing here with relation to Genesis 
will give you new eyes to see things like when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, or when John 1 talks about Jesus being the light. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When we hear this, what we're hearing is Paul saying, as I read the way God created the world in the Old Testament in Genesis, let light shine by his word. That's the same way that God saves through Jesus. Think about that for a second. In Genesis, how is God creating? How does God actually make the light? He's speaking. He's, he doesn't just go poof or bam with his you know, spiritual fingers and shoot lightning bolts and then there's light. No, there's a particular method. There's an MO to the way God creates. And it's through speaking. God speaks. And by his word, things pop up out of nowhere. You know? God speaks, let there be light, and that's why we call it by fiat, because fiat in Latin means let there be. Fiat lux means let there be light. And so when we're talking about doing something by fiat, it's merely by declaring it it's so. If any of you are sociologists and dabble in this world of speech act theory, in the saying is the doing. That's what we're saying here. It's, a, it's an act of God saying, and as he speaks it, it happens. It's not that he speaks it and then minions come around and, yes, sir, and they do it. No, no, no. By his word, things actually happen. And so Paul is saying, it's that same way that God saves you. It's that same way that recreation of you post-fall works. That same logic of the way God works through his word when he said, let there be light, is the same thing that happens when he resurrects you. There's a really beautiful illustration of this with Jesus and Lazarus. Do you remember the episode? How, when does Lazarus actually come out? When Jesus speaks. And he speaks a very specific word to the tomb and to Lazarus. What does he say? Lazarus, come out. And then Lazarus rises. Why? Because God resurrects through his word. And Jesus is demonstrating the way God's MO and power work. All right? So I think several things. Let's look a few other places to corroborate this. Look at Romans 4, chapter 4, verse 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. He's not talking about creation here, although he is. He's talking about the way salvation works, but he's using creation language to describe it. Who gives life to the dead, calling into existence things that weren't there, right? This Latin phrase, ex nihilo, out of nothing, God created the world by his word. Same way he saves. He calls into existence nothing that was there. This is why we're fiercely Protestant. Because if there's any room for us to say, I was still existing at the time that God called me out of darkness, we're not understanding the way Paul is reading Genesis. Because Paul, Paul is saying, just as God, 
brought something out of nothing. Jesus brings life out of your nothingness. You don't bring anything to the table. It's why Paul is at pains to always make these sharp distinctions between works and faith, righteousness by the law and righteousness by faith. Why? Because it's 100% the work of God and zero of you. Why? Because this Genesis theology tells me that the way God's word works is it brings something out of nothing. Do you hear that? how sharp and clear the distinction of labor is in your salvation? That's embedded in the way that Paul, obviously, is reading Genesis. Now turn with me to that great well-known passage in 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Many of us, if we were kids growing up in the church, memorized this. The language is a little bit fuzzy depending on your translation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Creation language for the way that you're saved yet again. So we hear it. But other translations, and they're equally valid. In fact, they might be more what Paul is saying here. Is therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there is new creation. Which is helpful for us to remember that God is not only about redeeming us individuals and souls, but he's going to resurrect this entire earth that is broken and marred by the fall, right? So God's work through Jesus on the cross isn't merely spiritual salvation. It's cosmic, spiritual and physical. It's holistic in nature. And so again, in sum, when Paul reads the creation account in Genesis, he observes God has an MO. God has a way of doing things. He does things, as Hebrews calls it, by the word of his power. Paul's big aha is if this is God's MO, not only does he create that way, he recreates that way post-fall. He saves that way. Now turn with me. This is where we're going to start to understand why it's important to be Bible-believing people. Turn with me to Romans 10, verses 14 through 17. Romans 10. Verses 14 to 17. This is going to clue you into why we at the Advent care a lot about preaching, the Bible, and the Word of God. It has to do with the way Paul is reading Genesis here. Listen to this language. Romans 10, verses 14 to 17. How then will they, people who haven't believed in Jesus yet, call on him in whom they have not believed and how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard and how are they to hear without someone preaching and how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news but they have not all all obeyed the gospel for isaiah says lord who has believed what he has heard from us so and this is the famous line faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ or the word about Christ, right? So now we understand why verbal words proclaiming Jesus is important because it's embedded into God's MO of the way he works. God works through his word. So many dominoes fall for us. It means that the Bible is important. It means that the Bible is important because if God has revealed himself in his word there, if you're looking for spiritual strength, 
If you're looking for faith and renewal, God births faith in you there. Is your faith struggling? Pray for a hunger and thirst for the word of God and read it and meditate it and meditate on it and study it. Why? Because that's the way God works. God gives faith there. All right. It also means that being a Bible based church is important to teach the scriptures and to preach the scriptures and for you to do the same in your own lives and amongst others is to enact and live into the way God works. God creates and recreates through this word. So if you want to see power unleashed in this world for the sake of his name, you're going to be speaking his word and opening it up because that's God's MO. That's the way that he works. That's the way Paul reads Genesis about creation and recreation, right? It means studying, reading, and meditating on the Bible is important for every Christian. Speaking the Bible's words and truth to others is important. So that's the first point. Any thoughts, comments, or questions about this? You do have some occasions where he doesn't speak a word. So when the waters turn to wine, he doesn't say. I know, it's interesting. I was thinking about that. You're right. Paul Paul, feeding the 5,000, let's get ready to look it up. He doesn't say, all right, turn it to. Right. Right, he blessed and broke it. Yeah, Yeah, so there is some ambiguity in those narratives about sometimes the way some of those miraculous things happen. which is why you always kind of want the teaching moments of Scripture to help us understand the narrative moments of Scripture, if there's sort of hierarchy of the way Scripture interprets Scripture. You listen to the clear instances where you know Paul's giving us the structure, and then you go back to the narratives and watch for the way it works. So I'm not sure how those things work. Maybe it is that the narratives don't record Jesus speaking when he did. Or uh, you know he is the living word in a way, so he embodies that. Um, but for us, you know, it's very clearly a word-based thing that we do when we encourage one another in the faith and when we open the scriptures with one another. It's just a very simple kind of idea, but the idea is because God works through his word, we open it up and believe that that's the way faith works for us as well. I mean, in your own conversion, of course, the scripture was somehow speaking to you in that because the Spirit of God moves on the Word. Just like um, I can't, you can't hear words that are coming out of my mouth and from my body apart from actual air moving through my vocal cords and, and coming to you. So the Word of God really doesn't go forth without the Spirit of God, the breath of God. There's the same words in Greek and Hebrew. The Spirit is always going forth in the Word. So if you want to be a most excellent biblical charismatic, which I want to be, You want the word and spirit to be coming together. And when they do, they come in power and the fire falls, right? Think think about those great instances in Scripture. Acts 2, Pentecost. Peter preaches. He's opening up Jesus in the Old Testament. He's walking through the story and saying, it's about Jesus. And as he does, the spirit comes and boom, people are cut to the heart. And they, in mass, come to Jesus, right? Other thoughts or questions about God's MO and the way this works in creation and salvation? I just thought it makes your point all the more. When Lazarus came out, that was a rebirth. He spoke and he was reborn. The feeding of 5,000 was food. It, it represented something, but he spoke that. I think it, you know, yeah. it, it uh, emphasizes the theot part of the rebirth. And yeah, that's true. 
Yeah, when there's an actual resurrection, you find Jesus using words to create it in the several times that he raises people from the dead. Right. Right. So he gets kind of special treatment. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. His deeds are the doing of those words. You know, Jesus doesn't neglect saying things, but it's also in his doing that he is enacting the word of God made flesh for us. I think that's a really good point. Hano. That's. That's, I mean, that's a really good point. Sometimes we're, we downgrade. We think like the cross is over. They're going to take me down now because I'm dying. Ugh, you know, no, he's he's actually it, he's doing something in the it is finished. And what is finished, folks? What 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 was finished when he said that? Salvation. Salvation. What particularly, though, because there's language in this finishedness. That's tied to biblical theology of what? Payment. What else? Judgment and sin. Jesus is saying the final judgment that is is headed your way when you see the Lord upon death is done. He spoke that word and it's not that it was possible. He spoke it and it was so for you who hear that word. Do you realize what a powerful thing that if God is a God who recreates or creates through his word and says it and it's so. And Jesus, God incarnate on the cross says, your final judgment is done. And the, and the implication is because I'm on this cross, the verdict is not guilty. What does this mean for every Christian? When you go see Jesus, you already know what he's going to say to you. Isn't that powerful? That's a great time bending moment for those of us who live on the other side of the cross to hear that word that sort of folds the future judgment that you have back on itself on that past act that is declared to you because God still works through his word such that when I or any of you say to another believer declaring that word, it is finished. There is therefore now no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed your transgressions from you to remember your sins no more. What are you actually feeling in your heart right now? You're feeling that welling up of faith. Thank you, God. It's secure. It's safe. It's done. It happens. Don't you know, if you're really paying attention in our liturgy, doesn't that happen all the time in worship? What is God doing? He's birthing faith through his word. When you confess your sins and then some poor, sinful, broken minister stands in front of you like any of you could do, and declares your forgiveness and declares these comfortable words that talk about the finishedness of this. Come unto me, all you who are uh, labored and, and, and burdened, and I will give you rest. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him shall not perish in the final judgment, but have everlasting life. What's happening in that moment? God is delivering to you his word that is birthing that faith that will preserve you unto the end. Because that's the way God works through his word. Isn't that powerful? That means that, oh man, if we're in a worship service or we're over coffee with someone and they're speaking God's word, lean into it. Because it's powerful and it's transformative and it's the work God does. 
and it's the way he does it. So do you need more faith? Do you find your faith wavering? Go to the word. Let the word tell you. And let the word tell you in a variety of forms. Singing, praying, Bible reading, Bible proclamation, preaching, the sacrament. All those ways the word is reminding you of the finishedness of the Jesus that is the 2x and the 8 of the Old Testament. And Paul's saying, that's the way I read Genesis there. That God creates and recreates. Yes? I'm just thinking about how this, um, what this could have for play, how it could play in, in accessory prayer. Uh, you know, we ask Jesus to be there, to act, to heal, do all this, but speak more into this awful yes. situation. Yes. To speak. Of course, you can pray scripture. That's right. And all that. To speak, right? Because that's the way he acts. Lord, speak. Resurrect the situation. And then maybe it even, I mean, I, I to jam on your theme, when we're praying for others, pray the scriptures over them. Pray the Bible over them. Let the words of God. And so another plug. I don't know if you realize this, but the Book of Common Prayer, it's estimated that about two-thirds of it is either direct scriptural quotation or scriptural allusion. And that's very purposeful because Thomas Cranmer, who architected it, believed this theology. He believed that God creates faith the same way he created the world, by his word. And so he wanted us not only hearing it, but praying it. He wanted to fill our service with the word of God so that at every passage, just doing, it's unleashed to do its work. Now, maybe we'll end here, but think about that great opening prayer that precedes Cranmer, but he has an agenda in bringing it to the front of the service and giving it to the people of God, of our Holy Communion liturgy. That prayer, it's called the Collect for Purity. It actually is an homage to Hebrews. Hebrews 4 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing the soul, dividing joints and marrow, and no creature is hidden from its sight. All right, now hear the collect for purity. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts, which is an interesting phrase because it's mind and heart together. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love thee the fruit of that, and worthily magnify thy holy name. He's basically given us a theology of the way the word works in life and in a worship service. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open. So a worship service, along with your life as you encounter the word of God, is to be a daily recapitulation of nothing short but spiritual open heart surgery. You know, I sometimes thought that this collect for purity was like, my heart's open to you, Lord. Take it, do whatever. No, 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 no. We're talking about a sword that cuts your sternum and rips open your chest and exposes the most vulnerable part of you. That's what the word of God is there to do. In, in the future weeks, we're going to talk about how Paul exegetes the word of God in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And we'll see very clearly this kind of intense language for the way the word works, which is the word of God exists and works to kill you and then to make you alive. Always in that order. And the word of God is actively doing that, which is why it's called a sword. It's not so much our weapon, although it is, we learn later it is against the enemy, but it's first God's weapon of choice to slay you and to make you alive. And so what part of you is being slayed? 
That's the other part of Genesis that we'll look at next week. We're going to hear Paul's theology of Adam and how Adam and Eve live in you, Christian. And that's the kind of stuff that we'll get to when we think about the fall wasn't only an event. It becomes the way life works. And the Christian's life because of the fall is always going to be marked by tension and contradiction. It's because God's word is still seeking that that old Adam out that is dead, but is also dying and needs to be put to death. And so the word of God is, is headed there and is going to be doing that. And then making you alive by saying, Lazarus, come out. There is no condemnation. It is finished. Any other questions before we're done? We've got three more minutes. Yes. That's right. That's right. That's right. And I mean, you know very deeply about these people. Um, I think that it does give us great hope that Lazarus isn't just an illustration. He actually shows us that God's word can come to a person without ears and actually make them alive. That the way God's word works is so powerful that even a deaf person can receive God's word and be saved. And God loves to show off his power. It's his heart and his pleasure to do things like that. Why? Because then you know, oh man, that's clearly of the Lord. It's why Paul's at pains to say, it wasn't just while you were dying that God came and saved you. You weren't drowning. See, sometimes we use these illustrations of salvation, like I'm drowning and I'm going to drown unless God throws me a life raft. That's not the illustration that Paul uses. He says, even while you were dead in your transgressions. So if we're going with the oceanic metaphor, your bloated, dead corpse at the bottom of the ocean and the Holy Spirit scuba diver comes to you who can't do a darn thing but lay there dead, being eaten away by the fish. And the Holy Spirit grabs you, pulls you up on the boat, breathes life into you out of nothing. And then you wake up and see your maker and go, my Lord and my God. That's salvation. That's salvation. God speaking to the deaf. Craig. Romans 15, 4 speaks to Lauren's point. Say it. Praise God. There's so much hope because God works through his word. So God, we praise you and we thank you and we worship you. We know that's kind of the end game of all this, that we might be resurrected to see you for all that you are and glorify you in our lives. So Monday through Saturday, Lord, I pray that you would reverberate this word in our hearts so that we might love others well and we might showcase the magnificence of Jesus as you work in us to speak this word. Bring us back next week. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.